This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Advocacy is something that many nonprofit leaders struggle with. Not so much whether or not we should advocate, but how best should we advocate for those we serve? On the one hand, some nonprofits fear becoming too political and are afraid of being seen as lobbyists. And on the other, not advocating at all for those you serve seems to go against the very mission that most nonprofits have. So what is the healthy balance? And particularly when it comes to nonprofits that serve the low-income population in our country, either through addressing food insecurity or affordable housing or healthcare or education, what is the best way to advocate on behalf of those you serve through your organization? Well, my guest today is Joanne Goldblum. She is both the CEO of the National Diaper Bank and co-author, along with journalist Colleen Shaddix, of a new book entitled Broke in America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. We will talk about this topic while focusing much of our discussion specifically on poverty in America and how best to address it. Enjoy today's show. Well, thanks, Joanne, for being on the show. You know, I wanted to start by exploring the question that many of my guests have mentioned on my show before when it comes to COVID. Specifically, why during this COVID pandemic did the lower class in our country bear really the brunt of this pandemic? And not only that, what was interesting was there these issues that we have in our culture have been around for a long time, but it certainly seemed like COVID uncovered and exposed the widening gap between the low-income community on the one hand and the middle to high-income communities on the other in a way that is undeniable now. So maybe talk about that. What have you seen from your experience and your research and your own personal leadership experience with nonprofits? Sure. It, it's a really good question, and it's interesting. From the perspective of um, material basic needs and the work that I do at the National Diaper Bank Network, we think that COVID really laid bare for all Americans what it is to struggle with not having your material basic needs met. When things first started and there was, was the hoarding and there were people, you know, panic buying, it's the first time that many U.S. Americans ever went to a supermarket and couldn't get what they needed. You know, people don't have that experience. And so I think that that really opened people's eyes to say, wow, it's really stressful not to be able to meet your material basic needs. And so, you know, that, that I think is one of the things that I think has helped more U.S. Americans to have some empathy towards people who might not have as much. You know, so I think that that's one important thing. I think that a big part of the reason that COVID really hit the low-income community so much harder, I mean, you know, I think the things that we all sort of know, people who struggle economically tend to work hourly. 
tend to have jobs that don't have paid leave or paid time off, tend not to have private transportation and are often dependent on others. And more than that, they are the people who can't work from home. So, you know, in every aspect, of course it hit them harder. And I think that in the U.S., we tend to sort of Like if we don't see it, we think it's not really happening. And so I think that so much happened during this last year and a half, you know, or longer that made it so that unless you really, really kept your eyes closed tight, you couldn't help but see it. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it was really obvious to everybody. And I, like you, lead a nonprofit. And so therefore I was, you know, knee deep in the reality of what we've been doing for many years. But I can think across the board, uh, particularly where I live in Park City, we have a lot of people that have second homes here. And there's an idea that even in Park City, Utah, oh, there's not really that much need. There's not much of our community that really needs a food pantry or special rent assistance. But COVID changed all of that. Like you said, I don't think anybody, unless you were completely just closing your eyes, not listening to the news, not looking around at what was going on around you, you couldn't miss it now. It's it's clear. And I know one of the things also for my listener's sake, you've written this new book, Broken America. And there's so many layers to poverty in our country and, and indicators of poverty are many, right? I mean, we have found in my own nonprofit again, that typically one of the first indicators of poverty has been food insecurity. It'll show up, but they don't have enough food and they'll come to our food pantry, for example. But affordable housing is also a major contributing factor. And I think after COVID now, we're all dealing with this, certainly here in Utah, but I think across the country, affordable housing is even more of an issue now. And then access to resources, is another big layer of poverty and why people are in poverty. And then finally, transportation, which often, you know, is related to access to resources. If you don't have public transportation often and don't have adequate transportation, you can't get to the resources that are out there that could help you. So maybe you could talk a bit about that and maybe you can phrase it this way. When it comes to those who are uh, low income in our community, why is climbing out of poverty so much harder than falling into it? What we always say, Colleen and I always say, and lots of other people do as well, it is more expensive to be poor than it is to be wealthy. Things cost more when you're poor. So that, you know, on a very concrete level is true. You know, if you buy, you know, diapers, for example, if you buy a pack with six or 12 at a um, corner store or convenience store, it costs a lot more than if you can go to one of the big box stores that you pay a fee to join. So if you can go to BJ's or Costco or something like that, but in order to do that, generally speaking, you need enough money to join. You then need enough money to lay out to buy a month's worth of diapers at once. Generally, you also need transportation because those types of stores tend to be places that you have to drive to get to. You can't take public transportation. So, you know, there are all those. There's there's sort of the concrete aspect of it. And then you add to that the fact that, as I said before, most poor and low-income people have hourly wage or work hourly wages and don't have paid time off 
We also know that children are the largest group of poor people in America. Taking care of children requires taking time off work sometimes. And it's often time you haven't planned to take off. So you're constantly in this situation of trying to meet your needs while not having any flexibility. And then on top of it, one of the things that I use as a way to try to explain this to people is I ask people to think about every, every way that they buy them their way out of a problem. So every time you spend $2 or $5 or $10 to make your life more convenient, what does it mean if you can't pay the extra $2 for your parking ticket? If you can't pay the $10 to get a copy of your child's birth certificate, I am never the only parent who has lost their child's birth certificate. And almost every every area of the country requires you to pay to get a replacement birth certificate. But so things like that, you know, where I might say, you know, if I forget, you know, my kids are grown now, but when they were younger, you know, if I forget to bring lunch, I can drive through Subway and pick up lunch for them. You know, when you don't have those options, everything is more difficult. And also, as a rule, we offer a lot more sort of sympathy to people of privilege. So as, as, a, as a sort of upper middle class or, you know, a woman of privilege, I can say, you know, I can complain bitterly about how stressful my life is, right? I can talk about how difficult it is to get everything done and how can I possibly... And that's with, you know, a partner who is equal, enough money to pay all my bills, cell phone, cars, landline. How do you do it without those things? How do you manage? And we don't take that into consideration when we look at things like school. There's an example. So, so Connecticut has done a lot of work in the area of, you know, magnet schools and charter schools. So there's school choice everywhere. You know, and on one hand, that's wonderful. On the other hand, we don't have a requirement that every school have the same vacations or the same start time or the same buses. So you can have three kids at three different schools with three different schedules. And even under the best of circumstances, that's really hard. But what do you do if your kids are getting off buses in different places at the same time? It, it, it's just not possible. And the way we make policy in the United States doesn't allow for things like one parent can only pick up in one place at one time. But we just completely discount that. You know what I really appreciate about what you're saying is these are real life, everyday situations that particularly those who are in that lower income community, they face every day. And sometimes it's something that I think a lot of us could take for granted. Perhaps one of our, if you're married, your one partner maybe has more flexibility in their job or doesn't work, maybe even outside the home and has the flexibility to pick up kids at three different locations. But I like the 
honesty of these are the real things they're facing. Now, we've talked about the pandemic and how that really did expose a lot of the challenges that were already here and had been here for a long time, but now everyone can see this widening gap and then how uh, particularly those who are in the lower income and the margins of society really have taken the biggest brunt of this pandemic. Maybe on the positive side, though, not to be Pollyannish, but just do you feel like when it as we look back now 18 months over this COVID pandemic, what do you think our country got right during the COVID pandemic when it comes to those that we served on the margins of our society? Was there anything you felt like we did right? So I will say that I am incredibly optimistic about some of the policies that have been put into place in the last, you know, since since January. The fact that we, you know, have an eviction moratorium and that that was just re-upped. The fact that we have a fully refundable child tax credit. To me, that is so important. And I don't think a lot of Americans understood, or even to this day probably still understand, that the child, the earned income tax credit was only was not available to the poorest among us. It was only available if you earned enough taxes to get it back. And so the fact that it's now fully refundable, that means money is going directly to families who need it. So I'm really, really encouraged by that. I'm also encouraged, and I don't know if this is what you saw with your nonprofit, we saw really a great deal of generosity during COVID. And I think people were so generous because they saw it. And also, you know, we tend to be, as a country, we tend to respond to things we know. And I think that during COVID, there's nobody who didn't know somebody who really, really struggled, you know, who didn't lose their job, who got really sick. You know, we all had that experience. And so I do think that we may be a somewhat more empathetic country. I really appreciate you saying that. And, and I would definitely second your comment that we just, where we live in Park City, again, in the Summit County area, this is relatively speaking, population-wise, pretty small. And we were able to give out $2 million in rent assistance. Now, you do a lot of work, obviously, as the CEO of the Diaper Bank and with your research for this book. I'm curious, you know, when it comes to if, say, you had the opportunity to focus all of our nonprofits and our government agencies on the top three issues that would address the biggest causes of poverty, what would you say are the three top most important issues that need to be addressed, in your opinion? So, in, in my opinion, there are lots of issues but I would say there's really one. And that's that people don't have enough money. I think that we have complicated the issue of poverty and we've tied it up with all of these things. Um, You know, the, the thesis of our book was really people are not the problem. Poverty is the problem. And poverty is a lack of money. In the United States, the way that we're talking about it, that's what it is. And so what we need to do is figure out a way for people to get what they need. And 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 what that means is there's a gap between what U.S. Americans make and what it costs to live. 
And we need to find a way to fill that gap. And, and there are lots of ways, right? We can raise wages. We can lower the cost of commodities. We can give people money. You know, there's universal basic income. There are all different ways of doing it. But, but we can. You know, we know how much it costs to live. So I think that, you know, making, you're making sure people have the money, but also changing the formulas for the federal poverty level. Because in large part, what we do in the United States is define our way out of poverty as opposed to actually lift people out of poverty. So we'd say, well, you know, they are living above the federal poverty level. Okay. There's not a single place in the country, there are very few places in the country where you can live at or below the federal poverty level and still afford, you know, rent and food and to take care of yourself and your family. We'll be right back. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. And finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. So you're saying, it's, I'd say it's similar to the minimum wage discussion that's going on, that's been going on for a while, that as opposed to really dealing with the poverty, the root issue of poverty, we've just kind of redefined or, or shuffled the lines around and changed the uh, description and or uh, maybe the litmus test of what it means to be in poverty. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think that that is a big part of it. I think that we, you know, we haven't changed it. I think that that's the thing. The fact is we've left it the same for so long. And that that's how we've done it by, you know, the, the fact that, and, and I'm not as good with the numbers, but, you know, the minimum wage hasn't raised and CEO pay in the private sector has gone up, you know, exponentially. The money is there. It's what we choose to do with it. Interesting. I think you ha you're onto something there. And now, again, we talked about the National Diaper Bank. You're the CEO. And this podcast is all about leadership in the nonprofit sector. So talk a little bit about from that role, what's your biggest leadership challenge right now that you're facing as the CEO of the National Diaper Bank? It's <sighs> a really good question. So at the National Diaper Bank Network, we are right now a staff of 14. I think that the biggest challenge we have is managing to do all of the things that we want to do on a shoestring. You know, that's how nonprofits work, right? We're expected to do lots with very little. And I have an amazing team. 
And it's funny, I recently met with my board leadership committee and said, you know, we're just 10 years old. We're about to have our 10th anniversary. That up until now, we have managed to do everything through sheer will and determination. And, you know, we, we like to say we are just people who get things done, right? And we're at a tipping point. We can't. We're, there's too much to do for us just to get things done. And so I think the biggest challenge I have right now is figuring out how to raise enough money to hire enough staff to do all the work that there is to do. Because, and I'm sure you feel like this, right? It's just endless. It's it's like, you know, gaining weight to fit pants, you know, with just as big as you get, you, you, you get a little bigger. Good analogy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, isn't that, I, you speak to something right on the heart of every executive director, every CEO of a nonprofit. There is more work to be done than you often have staff. And there's more work to be done than you have in terms of budget. And you know, you could do so much more if you had more budget and more people, but it's a challenge. And I think you're right. And I think, you know, we won't get too much of this, but uh, we've talked with many guests on the show that COVID, one of the things that was a negative again about COVID was while humanitarian nonprofits actually did really well, people were super generous to food banks, for example, or medical care, healthcare related nonprofits. There's a lot of nonprofits that People just didn't have the money to give to, and they've really struggled, and they've had to let go of people. They've had to cut back. Some have even closed their doors. And so I think that's the reality is that COVID did expose maybe those nonprofits that didn't have maybe potentially a diverse enough funding stream for their nonprofit or just the fact that they they were focused on something that was non-humanitarian driven, and people just didn't feel like that was as worthy, perhaps, of their donation. Did you see any of that from your point of view? Absolutely. I mean, and I think it's it's really hard. Certainly, I think that the arts have really, really struggled, you know, and it used to be that they made, you know, it was much easier to be sort of an arts organization than to be a humanitarian organization, like in a fundraising perspective. And that's not true right now. Personally, I think that solving big problems requires like a three-legged stool. There's philanthropy, there's corporate, but there's also government. And personally, I don't feel the government has done its bit. I, and I know not everybody agrees with me on this, but I think that we don't really have a social safety net to speak of. It's, it, it's just not there. And I think that it leaves people so incredibly vulnerable. And we've sort of, you know, the reason we named the book Broken America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty is because we really feel like people don't see it. And if they do see it, they don't understand it. You know, we have made poverty so shameful that people are embarrassed for other people to know that they're struggling financially. You know, we don't right? What is it? We don't talk about money and sex, but money is right there. And, you know, why are we so, you know, we just don't. And I, and I think that that really is part of what has made it so difficult for people to get out of poverty, aside from all of the concrete aspects of it. But, you know, if you look at 
you know, all of the entitlements that we have, you know, SNAP, which is food stamps, you know, they all have asset limits. So if you do finally start to save some money, you can't, you can't get these benefits if you've got a couple thousand dollars. And if you don't have a couple thousand dollars, you can't meet a crisis. And so, you know, again, we know it. We ignore it. It's, it's interesting you say that because that I do think that it is often so much the case where if you're really trying to make some improvements and you're climbing out of a very difficult situation economically, but you're not quite at the place where you can be self-sustained, it's almost like you get punished with the current system, right? You get stuck in between. Yeah. And that was the understanding part of the book. We wanted people to see that, you know, lots of people believe that there are, you know, people in the United States who are living large off SNAP benefits. And, you know, might there be some people who abuse the system? Sure. Like there are people who abuse every system that exists. Most people living on SNAP benefits are not comfortable in any way. I'm glad you mentioned that. I would just say, again, with the work I've done and, and people that I've had on my show that work with the low-income community of their city or state, that is the case. The large majority of people are really trying to work hard to get out of their situation. They just need some help along the way. They've hit hard times. They've had a medical situation. They weren't expecting uh, car repairs that were more expensive than they thought. And all of a sudden, one thing leads to another. And then, of course, COVID, again, just pushed it to a whole other level. That your conversation really leads well to the next question when it comes to advocacy, because I know that's something you're very much an advocate in your role and what you've done through the National Diaper Bank. Many nonprofits, I think, struggle to know the balance between like the right amount of advocacy. On the one hand, you don't want to become too political in, in their work. At the same time, you want to advocate certainly for the people that you serve. What advice would you give to nonprofit leaders when it comes to advocacy? And what's that kind of not the perfect balance, but what's a healthy balance? You know. It's, I think it's really hard and I think it's hard for a few different reasons. You know, first, I think that often nonprofits, leaders and boards sort of mix together lobbying and advocacy. And they're really two different things. So, you know, lobbying, absolutely. We have to be careful with the amount that we lobby. And I personally am a big proponent of the H election for your 501c3 so that, you know, it, it, I think that's a little bit easier, but that, that's my personal opinion. And I'm not, I'm not an expert, but that's, you know, what we do. But, you know, talking to elected leaders about problems is not lobbying. It's advocating. It's only lobbying if you're at, you know, you're talking about a specific bill, a specific regula- regulation, you're asking for an earmark. That's lobbying. Everything else is just education and advocacy. And personally, I think that organizations that are serving populations and aren't educating and advocating are missing part of their calling because, you know, our elected officials count on us to teach them and to help them to do what they're elected to do. You know, they're not experts in everything. 
they're, you know, they're smart, they're committed, they're all sorts of things, and they have staff that might be experts. But we can go in and be the voice. You know, so we host a lobby day every year in DC for the National Diaper Bank Network and the Alliance for Period Supplies. We also do period products. But with that, we do a lot of education. So the National Diaper Bank Network is made up of, you know, over 250 local programs, basic need banks across the country. We do a lot of work teaching about advocacy, how to advocate, you know, like one of the things we always suggest to our members, invite your elected officials to see your place. That's not lobbying. That's showing them the work that's being done in your community. And in my experience, elected officials on both sides of the aisle are really, really open to coming, meeting, talking, learning. So, I I mean, I think it's a really, really important part of what we do as nonprofits. I like how you split that out between, you know, lobbying on the one hand, but advocating on the other. And I think that's a very helpful distinction for nonprofit leaders. So thanks for that. Now, okay, for your book, which I encourage people to check out, one of the things I thought was a very bold statement is this, that you believe that poverty in the U.S. could be eradicated in our lifetime. Now, that's a bold statement, as I mentioned. I think a lot of people would be on like one side, yes, we can do that, and they would support you. And there's others who would say, no, that's pie in the sky. There's no way. There's always going to be some level of poverty. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Why would you say something like that? And, and what's your uh, data to back it up? When Colleen and I decided to write this book, we decided to do it because we felt like there wasn't anybody else sort of talking specifically about this. And one of the things we say in the book is that poverty is not gravity. Poverty is man-made. And if we made it, we can end it. And so I think that, you know, it, it might seem pie in the sky. It's not. We have endless amounts of money. It, it's a matter of priorities and deciding what we're going to do with it. And so I think that if more of us believed that, we really could change things. Because one thing also that I believe, and I, I have to believe it to get through the day, I believe that most of us are doing the best we can that most of us want the best for our children. You know, that's what, that's, that's the human condition. And so, you know, if you sort of go in with the assumption that most of us want good things, I think we can change things. But I do, you know, to me, the reason it's not pie in the sky is because it's not a law of nature. Uh, That's an interesting analogy. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, people that are listening will probably want to check out your book and find out a little bit more about you and the National Diaper Bank. So if people that are listening and for the first time are hearing more about what you do, how best can they get in contact with you or find out more about the National Diaper Bank? Sure. So, you know, people can certainly go to our website and that's just nationaldiaperbanknetwork.org. And the book, we have a website brokenamerica.net. And both of those are easy to find. And I do always, you know, want to mention, and I've said a few times, you know, that that I did co-author this book with Colleen Shaddix 
And you can find out about both of us. You can contact both of us through the book website. And certainly you can contact me through the National Diaper Bank Network's website. Well, Joanne, thanks so much for taking time. And thanks for what you're doing on behalf of those who do fall through the cracks, so to speak, in our society that are on the margins that really need extra support and services. I know we personally, have the, we have two food banks that we help lead with a nonprofit that I oversee, and we benefit from these diapers that come through. So I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for speaking out on behalf of those who probably don't feel like they have a voice. So really appreciate you taking time to be on the show today. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me and I appreciate the conversation. This was fun. Hey friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review, give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.